0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. We'll read the first 12 verses of Proverbs 3 this morning. But in the middle of this reading, we have verses 5 and 6, which if you walk in, uh, you'll see that those are the verses we have on the wall. So that's pretty important verses. And we've been singing about God making a way. Uh, where there seems to be no way, guiding us, leading us by His own hand, and of course these verses are about how when we trust God and we we acknowledge Him, uh, how He will He'll make our, our paths uh, straight. He will direct our paths, as it as it says, I believe in the King James. And so these are very important verses to us, and we'd like to read them in in context and understand them in light of what. Uh, the book of Proverbs is teaching us. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Listen to the reading of God's Holy Word. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not Steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son, in whom he delights. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this beautiful word that really has been written on the walls of this church. And Lord, more significantly, many of us from childhood, verses five and six have been written on our hearts. But Lord, sometimes we need to examine the treasures that are written there to understand what it is that, we already possess, or better, what we're possessed by. Lord, would you give us understanding? We know that we don't read these words alone, but your Holy Spirit has been poured out for, for such a time as this. That spiritual things are discerned spiritually, that we need the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you help us? We don't want to just hear these words like any other words. We want to know these are the words of life. Divine words, a part of the 66 books that are all that we need for life and for godliness. Lord, speak to our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts, give us ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that we would be humble. We would receive this word with fear and trembling and that they would help us to work out our salvation. Lord, knowing that it is you who both work in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. In the name of Jesus, we pray and together God's people said. Amen. As we come to Proverbs chapter three, we again see that this is the father addressing the son uh, this is another one of those speeches, so you can break the speeches up uh, into when he addresses the Son. He did that back in chapter two, verse one. And the first uh, address was in chapter one, verse eight. "Hear my son, your father's instructions, 1-8. Two one, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. And then now three, one, another speech from the Father. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. And so this is where we begin today with this third speech, this third training from the father. Just don't don't let that first word be missed, though. This is a father who his heart is tender toward the son. This is no arid uh, uh, academic discussion. He is absolutely passionate. His heart is all in. He wants to see his son have a godly character. He he wants to see his son to grow in wisdom so that he can live in a skillful, godly way in all of the chaos and all the sinfulness of this world. How can you live a godly life? How can you Live that way in the midst of so much ungodliness. And so, here again, feel that passionate discourse from the Father, pleading with the Son, My Son, do not forget my teaching. This is one of the themes of the Bible. One of our greatest spiritual problems is forgetting. We forget over and over again. You see in the Bible, God had blessed the children of Israel And he warns them in the book of Deuteronomy, when you come into the land that I give you, do not forget. Uh, We have great forgetters. And so we need to have many reminders. And as a parent or anyone, if you're trying to remind yourself daily, you need to remind yourself of the most important spiritual realities. Parents, uh, you think about this... um, that saying that uh, repetition is the mother of learning. And so we repeat things because we are prone to forget. And so he wants the child to realize, look, all that I've taught you will not avail you if you forget it. If you just let it go out of your mind. And that word there for teaching is the word for Torah not just meaning the Ten Commandments or the first five books, but meaning instruction about God, about God's purposes, and often done in the context of discussion. As you're uh, walking, as you're sitting, as you're eating, you're talking about the things of the Lord. I, I oftentimes hear people say, "Well, I don't have time with my kids to to discuss things of God." Well, do you ever eat together? Do you ever ride in the car together? Uh, um, if if we're to acknowledge God in all of our ways, then we can be talking about God in every aspect of our life. We can understand everything in its relationship to Him. And then you see, as he says, not only do not forget my teaching, but he says at the end of verse 1, but let your heart keep my commandments. Notice, this is so important about Christian character, about biblical character, godly character, both in the Old and New Covenant. It is never about mere external conformity to rules. It never is. Sometimes it became that. In fact, that was one of Jesus' main complaints with the Pharisees. right? They, They were externally conformed. But he says inside you are are full of dead men's bones. There's no spiritual life. You've missed the point. And and we see this even in in various forms of, of conservative evangelical Christianity that they just emphasize as long as you look a certain way, talk a certain way, don't hang out with certain people, as long as you look the part, that's what matters. But that's not... Biblical character. Biblical character is about the heart. Notice over and over that word there. uh, Let your heart keep them. Uh, Verse uh, 3. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Uh, In chapter 4, he's going to say above all else, guard your heart. The Bible is about the center of our being. The part that people can't see. I mean, this is so different. Um, one of the things about Islam, it's sometimes called uh, the straight path, sharia, which means the straight way. You do this, you walk on this path, that's it. It really doesn't matter whether you agree with it or how you feel about it, as long as you do it, as long as you dress the part, as long as you eat the part, as long as you feast or fast the part, as long as you pilgrimage the part, you alms the part, as long as you pray the part, It doesn't matter really what you are in the heart. This is not anywhere in the Bible the case. Certainly people in the Bible did live that way, not because they were in accord with the Bible, but because they were out of accord with the Bible. The Bible, Old Covenant, New Covenant, always about the core of who we are. It is not about artificiality, not about superficiality. It is about at the very core of our being, being truly right with God. This is who we are. This is what we long for. You know, you think about David. Why does God say, he is a man after my own heart? You see... David certainly fell into sin, and it was grievous sin. But God, as from David's youth, when, he, when Saul or when uh, Samuel came to find the new king, to anoint the new king, everybody was looking at age, right? They were looking at height. They were looking at, at, at all of the outward appearance. And, and God makes very clear man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So let's just say this. I can't see your heart. You can't see my heart. But ask yourself, is my heart longing to panting after the Lord? Do I really, is this something that I truly believe, that I really want? That's the desire. That's why God would say, David is a man after my own heart, because David was all about the heart. Did he fail? Did he fall? Did he falter? Yes, but he didn't do it because he wasn't sincere. He fell to the flesh, but at the core of his being, this was a man who longed, who panted after God, who longed for God. And this should be the heart of who we are. So don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep, keep my commandments, observing. It's not just the heart, it's from the heart. But it always works its way out into our behavior. And when he says that word commandments again, it's just reminding us that here the Father is speaking the words that come from the proverb writer who is speaking the words of God. So you can call them commandments, not just opinions. Many people, as we've said, they parent according to opinion. But we need to not parent according to the opinions of men, not even our own opinions, We parent according to the word of God. That is our command. Now, notice there in verse 2, he says, Why? You could translate that word for as because. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. And I just want to open this discussion. We won't, no way we can resolve it today. In fact, I don't know that we can resolve it fully. But this is the big question about Proverbs. Are Proverbs possibilities or promises? Are, are, are they what's probable or are they actually promises from God? I, I've been on both sides of the fence on this issue for years, and, and um, you know, I mean, you, you take, for example, uh, the train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll he'll not depart from it. And you know, we see children who grew up in Christian homes, and they just don't ever come back. And you wonder about that. And so you go, is this some kind of promise, or is it just a probability that's being presented? And so we've we've got to wrestle with this. And By and large, evangelical commentators tend towards saying what's presented are sort of the general probabilities. I think that maybe there's a problem with that. I think these might be more promises than we realize. For example, fundamentally, this is the problem with saying it's a probability, and in other words, you do this, you don't forget God's teaching, you let your heart keep his commandments, uh, but you really will not have uh, length of days and years of life and peace. Uh, uh, if If you say that, what you're saying is, is that it's possible for you to be faithful to God and God to be faithless to you. And Timothy makes very clear, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. But immediately our mind goes to the very story. What about chapter 1 of Proverbs? I mean, we just read through chapter 1, and it says in verse 11, if they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. So apparently someone who was innocent gets killed. Somebody whose innocent blood dies. And so, what do you do? Or or even the Bible itself. Doesn't the very Bible begin with someone who honored God with the first fruits of his life, as you say there in verse 9. And yet, the first person who honors God with the first fruits of his life, what happens? He's killed. So, is the Bible wrong? We can't say that. I, I believe if we do that, we undermine the faith. I think that what we have to say are several things. I believe they are promises. But they're promises, one that you need to understand, that you have here chapter 3, about length of days, but you also had chapter 1. So even though it's presenting a truth, it may not be the entire story. You need to put all of the Proverbs together to be able to understand exactly what God is promising. Jesus said, in this world you will have many tribulations. But fear not, for I have overcome the world. We are not just promised health and wealth and prosperity. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that evangelicals largely ignore the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is the number one book that your health, health, wealth, and prosperity Preachers on TV use, but they're not using it the way we're using it. They pick one verse and make it the whole truth, namely, honor the Lord with the, with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce, and your barns will be filled with plenty. They make that the entire story, whereas Jesus also says you will have many afflictions. So I, I think we do need to realize they are promises, but they're promises within the whole book. The whole canon. And then fundamentally, this is the answer. Proverbs is keen to tell people that you have to look to the end. Proverbs is keen to say, look, what matters is you've got to see the end of the matter. Where does it go? Where does it end up? And in every case, the righteous have a hope. You knock a righteous man down seven times, and yet he Stands up. He rises up, as it says in chapter 24. There is a hope that continues. And I think that what you see in seed form in Proverbs is this reality. Every word of God proves true, as it says at the end of Proverbs. Every word of God proves true. The problem is we're looking at it with too narrow a lens. These aren't just spiritual blessings, but literally, we're going to have new heavens, new earth, We are going to be blessed spiritually. Proverbs is not post-resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't understand all of those realities fully, but it is pointing us toward a future hope. Surely there is a future hope for the righteous, it says. And so I believe that there is a health, wealth, and prosperity aspect to this. And this is, I would quote one commentator on this. This is what he says And I believe him to be correct. He says, Proverbs are promises of future blessings that outlast death. And in that light, it does teach health, wealth, and prosperity. So we come to this book realizing that we've got to wrestle with with how We can think of illustrations of people who they honored their parents, they were obedient, and yet they died young. But we have to then see that in light of the whole book, the book does say that the righteous will suffer. The entire Bible makes that point plain, but that ultimately there is life beyond death. Physical death is not the end for the believer. But there is also a way in which this is a general principle. I mean, so many things it will say in here. For example, talking about the drunkard. And he'll talk about the drunkard or the person with a hot temper and how their life is cut short. And we can see just practically there's some truth to that, right? And so there is a general experienced principle of length of days and years of life. I I like one thing that it has here, and it says, and peace they will add to you. Um, Pauline, if you'll let me, I'd like to use the illustration from your mom. It was really um, a, a good. I think it it makes this point right here. Um, a couple years ago, we were we had a small group at the Hilton's house, and um, Jennifer and I. I don't know. We were feeling, I guess, kind of heady that night, and we're, somewhere it was our we'd had our wedding anniversary. It was like 25 or 26. I can't remember. And we were really excited, and we said, "Yeah, yeah, we'd like to live to be 101." And Mrs. Wirt, this is Pauline's mom, said, You'll regret it. (laughs) And I've thought a lot about that because you notice that the Proverbs, the writer of the Proverbs, knew that point. Because what did they say? For length of days and years of life, that's not enough. You can have a long life that is filled with pain and sorrow and tribulation. But notice what it says. And peace. What's the word there? Shalom. Shalom. Grace to you and peace in the New Testament. Irene. It's that wholeness. It's that vision that you see in Isaiah of this this beautiful kingdom where the lion and the lamb are, are, are lying down together, where we're all war, where we have have turned our weapons into plowshares. That, that, we, that really there is peace in, in the whole world and there is peace within. And this is the ultimate promise. This is the other side of the Jordan. This is the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we don't want just length of days and years of life. We want peace. And for a believer, even in the midst of tribulation... We can have the peace that comes from God, the peace of God, even in anxious and trying times. Then we read in verse 3, he continues, he says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Uh, These are the two sort of root virtues, character traits of the believer. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Chesed and emet. These are, these are the two uh, virtues that literally need to... They flow in and they permeate everything you do. That no matter whether you're at work on Monday morning or you're uh, with your family on Friday night or you're driving on Wednesday, or you're singing hallelujahs on Sunday, that everything you do is permeated with steadfast love and faithfulness. These are the two core virtues of the life of the believer. Um, Notice, by the way, what are these two virtues? These are two virtues that when God appears to Moses in Exodus 34, and Moses sees his hind parts, but he hears the declaration, we hear that God is full of steadfast love, that he is faithful. In in other words, this is one of the things people have argued, is this God or is this the believer? And and that's that's not a very good argument because it is God. But you know what? God communicates... His attributes, His character to us. Some of them, namely these virtues of steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, I'm that way and I want you to be that way. In everything you do, I want you to, they're bound around your neck. I want them to permeate. I want them to flow into every action, every word, every encounter. Nowhere that you go is your life compartmentalized against these spiritual virtues. That word chesed that's translated here in the ESV is steadfast love. If you go in the King James, I don't even know how many, but it's at least 12 different words that they use to translate this. It's just such a big concept. I mean, how do you get at it? And, and, and so it's a very rich term that's often defined by its context, but, but it can mean something like loyal love. It can mean kindness. Um, many of you know one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Mephibosheth. I just love that story. And At one of our men's retreats, we went over that story. And Of course, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, um, who was the grandson of the first king of Israel, Saul. And um, Mephibosheth, after his father and grandfather were killed on Mount Gilboa, um, he, in the panic, he was being carried by his nurse, and she fell, and he fell out of her, her arms, and he was crippled for life. And he was basically in hiding, because, I mean, you think about it, it happens in, in modern dictatorships today, or when there's a coup, a military coup, you pretty much want to wipe out all of your adversaries. And If there was one political rival to David, King David, it would have been anybody of the household of Saul, particularly through the line of Jonathan. But Mephibosheth was raised out of the spotlight. But remember that Jonathan and David, they were in a relationship, a bonded friendship, a covenant relationship of chesed, steadfast love. And it basically means this. I am going to be loyal to you in life and in death. It, it, it's, it's a loyalty that is so profound, and it's a loyalty even when you can't receive anything back. So Jonathan is dead, David's friend, and years later when he's king, he looks back and he says, you know what, is there anybody from Jonathan's family that I could show chesed to? Is there anybody I could I could just express That what the Lord does, I mean, you think about it. I mean, has not God been loyal to you? I mean, has he not expressed kindness to you? Even when you were weak and when you were low and when you were faithless, he was continuing to show his kindness to you, his patience to you. And so this flows into David's heart because it comes from God's heart into David's heart. And he says, I want to show it. And, and he says, oh yeah, there's a crippled boy. A crippled young man. His name is Mephibosheth. He's probably in his early 20s at this point. Go get him. David brings him into the palace. And he sets him at his table. Which means he basically takes over all of the expenses. He gives back land to him. He has his uh, Mephibosheth servants to work the land. And, and David brings close someone who was a political risk and someone who was a financial liability. Why? I mean, that makes no economic or political sense. Why would you weigh yourself down with somebody? What, why would you put somebody who literally could be a political rival or they could actually stir up trouble for you? Why would you do that? Because of hesed, loyal love, steadfast love. Love. And faithfulness is more about what's on the inside. Uh, Steadfast love is how we manifest that in loyalty, in that commitment to to do good, even when somebody can't do good in return. Jonathan couldn't do good in return. Mephibosheth couldn't do any good in return. But faithfulness is saying, I'm going to stick with what I commit to. Aren't you glad God is a faithful God? Aren't you glad that when you're weak, when you're down, and when you're faithless, He's faithful? I just want to make sure I'm talking to people like myself. How many of you, at this moment, you can think back, and you know if God had not been faithful to you, there was some point in your life where you were not faithful to Him. But he remained faithful to you. How many? You've got a story like that. Just hold your hand up. So many of us, we've experienced that. And this is what he's saying: God is this way. Now you need to be that way. Loyal, love, faithfulness. You think about today. I mean, in this the case. <clears throat> I mean, what are people loyal to anymore? Right. Not loyal to family commitments. Not loyal to other relationships that they're in. Just here, gone, up, down. Things get rough. Loyalty is gone. Faithfulness is gone. I've told you many times, but I'll tell you again. Growing up, when we were on furlough, the most beautiful sermons I ever saw was a basketball coach in the church where we would furlough. And he would come in every Sunday morning, and he would sit about two rows right in front of me, sometimes one row right in front of me. And he brought in his wife in a wheelchair. She had MS. And it was progressing. And he would wheel her in, and he would put her there, and you would just see him taking care of her, and her head would droop, and he would straighten her head, and she had problems with with uh, just, you know, controlling her her spittle, and he would wipe her, her chin so gently. And he did this for years. He fed her. He bathed her. He provided for her, and she couldn't do anything. I want to tell you, I don't remember many sermons from that time of my life. But I've never forgotten that big, strong man, Mike. And it wasn't about his external appearance. You know what I was seeing? I was seeing steadfast love and faithfulness. I was seeing it. It was bound around his neck. He didn't have to do that. He said, you know, put her in a home, be done with her, whatever. But he was faithful and he didn't know his life was preaching. His life was preaching and his character was being developed. Literally, there's some men in the world that can pray, but nobody can pray like Mike. I mean, he was through brokenness and through coming to the end of himself, he's become a prayer warrior. This is a man who can pray. What if he had just said, this is not convenient. This is not what I signed up for. I'm out of here. Not only would he not have been a testimony and a blessing, not only would it have been a, a harm to his wife and to his kids, it would have completely diminished and undermined his character. But instead, through what most people in the world would consider a loss, God shaped this man. He was getting nothing. He was giving everything. But he remembered that he had been given everything by a steadfast, loving Heavenly Father and by a faithful Savior. Literally here it says, bind them around your neck. Now, notice this, steadfast love is a virtue, a spiritual virtue. It does manifest itself in behavior, but you can't really see steadfast love. I mean, where is it, right? Where is faithfulness? But here it uses the picture, it says, bind them around your neck. It Put them like a collar around your neck. What this means is, is that the writer to Proverbs here is using poetry, when you describe or you explain or you illustrate a spiritual reality through a physical reality, you're doing poetry. And I think, this is just one word I want to say. One of the reasons that, and this is a very broad statement, but one of the reasons that God has worked so mightily and done amazing things in all spheres through the Hebrew people, through the Jewish people, through the years, I think... It's because they grew up learning like this. I think it is. As I ponder it, this is what I think. I think we only want, in sort of our scientific method, we're only looking at the world as though it was a material reality. Even though, even if you're the biggest materialist in the world, you know there's something about love and justice. These unseen virtues, how do you explain them? Where do they come from? But we sort of ignore them, so we only explain stuff we can see, we can touch, we can experiment with. But what the Jews did is they understood, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how to take spiritual realities and explain them to their children in physical ways. So bind this around your neck, and then they're going to explain how it looks and how it manifests itself. So this is just a, an appeal for this something very odd in one way. But I would encourage you to start reading some poetry. I know this is a weird encouragement, but I think you'll be smarter for it. I know I am. When I read, I start to see things. I think that it actually helps us to be more logical, Because it's it's helping us to explain spiritual realities that are very abstract and can be difficult in concrete ways, which is what poetry does. And so the Jews, this is how they train their kids. They, they, They train them to explain these high character virtues, these high realities, knowledge of the Holy One is insight. They explain those in very physical ways. And I think God used that to open their minds to many realms of learning and they have blessed the world greatly for it. And he says, write them on the tablet of your heart. It's not just they need to be in every behavior out here. They've got to be written on the heart. So before you do anything, is this exemplifying loyal love? Even if they can't... I mean, you think about... This is what Joseph said to his um, brothers when he died. He said, show steadfast love to me. By when you leave here, take my bones with you. What could Joseph have done to enforce that? Nothing. Right? Nothing. But it was something that could be done for someone who could not do for themselves... Are you in a relationship right now with somebody that God is calling you to exhibit steadfast love? Maybe they can't do for you what you want done for you. But God has manifested His love to you and you want to manifest that to them. I promise you it will be one of the strongest testimonies It'll be one of the greatest sermons your life ever preaches. And it will be one of God's greatest ways to shape you into the character of Jesus Christ. So we see here, these are to be those two virtues, steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping commitments even when it hurts. Keeping commitments even when the world is against it. Being loyal, being kind. Then it says, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Um, this idea here of success is the idea of repute. Basically, people say, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. Sort of like I'm, I'm saying about my friend Mike. Uh, just that is a good reputation. Many of you, you... You have that because of how you deal with your business, how people see you deal with your family, your kids, your grandkids. And and this is what it's saying. This is what happens. You're going to have in God's sight, if this is on your heart and around your neck, then both with God and man, you'll have favor and good success. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Think about this in light of all that we're learning in Proverbs. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the only story we have between the infancy of Christ And his full adult life, his ministry around 30 years of age, it's the only story. And yet it is filled with basically saying everything that was being taught in Proverbs, he was was taking it in, he was absorbing, and, and people were amazed. He was growing physically in stature, but he was growing, what does it say, in wisdom, Jesus didn't come into this world and say, you know what, I'm going to completely rely on the fact that I'm God, I know everything, I'm going to show everybody that out of the crib I've got it all figured out. He literally humbled himself, took on flesh, he became one of us, and he had to learn and grow just like us. Jesus had his daily devotions in Proverbs. I mean, isn't it just a little bit amazing to think we're reading Proverbs 3? Jesus, he was Soaking Proverbs 3 in. And it was literally manifesting itself in his life. Increasing in wisdom. Favor with God and men. What does it say? All of the people in the temple, they're amazed at all the questions he's asking and all the things that he's saying. And, and, and just lest you miss it, the most beautiful thing is in verse 49. He says, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? First of all, let me just say this. If if somebody came to you and said, what is the most unique thing about the teaching of Jesus compared to all other Jewish rabbis? What would you say is the one thing that stands out that is very different than every other rabbi? And I would say, I believe it's the fact that he thought of, and taught his disciples that God is Father. Now, it's there in very small measure in the Old Testament. And when it's there, by and large, it's God is a Father, sort of like a Father that creates. But not a Father that's intimately involved in the life of the child. Not a Father that loves. I mean... One of the things that when people come out of Islam into Christianity and they say that absolutely draws them, sort of like a, like a, uh, just like a light that just pulls them in, is because in Islam, God is in sort of a, a, a scary, distant judge that you can't really know. And in Christianity, they find that God is a, a loving, heavenly Father that they can know as their Abba. And here Jesus is saying... To his mother and to Joseph, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Um, I think he knew this. This was the Spirit of God, it was the reality. But I think he got it out of Proverbs 3. Did you see it at the end? Look back with me in Proverbs 3. Verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Literally everything about him growing in favor with God and man and and here God is, it's not saying God is the Father, but He's saying He's like a Father. Jesus is going to take it one step further and say, He's not just like a Father, He is the Father. He's my Father, and if you are attached to me in faith, He can be your Father too. And this is revolutionary when you come to God and you realize He's not out to get you. He's not looking for you to mess up. He's not just waiting to zap you and to judge you. God is fatherly toward His creation. And in Jesus Christ, He is inviting the world to come into a relationship with Him and to know Him as their Abba, as their Father. Now, when you have that, then all of a sudden, notice what you can do. If you really think God is is a Father, and that's His desire, even when He disciplines you, corrects you, brings affliction into your life, Brings, makes you feel miserable when you sin. Makes things not work out the way you want them to work out. What does it allow you to do? Well, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. Let me tell you, I don't think you can trust anyone that you don't believe is good and is for you. But we know here that God is good, and God is for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? And, and here, you're, you'll notice this if you will go down, verse uh, 5 says, trust the Lord. But go to verse 7, This after the semicolon, it says, fear the Lord. Trust the Lord and fear the Lord. Remember, the fear of the Lord is not meant to make you run away from God. It's to make you know that there is no shadow of turning in God. This actually is a scary thing because everybody we know is sort of a mixture. We've got some good, we've got some evil, so we're consistent a little bit and not so consistent more. But God is perfectly good and perfectly consistent. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And that's a scary reality. But it's not a scary reality to make you run away from him. It's a fear that makes you say, you know what, I better trust him with all my heart, with all that I am, because God doesn't play. God doesn't just, he's not wasting words. He's not saying stuff that's not going to be. If God says, if you bind steadfast love and faithfulness to you, that you will find a success, even as we said, maybe at the end of the matter, then we trust that. By the way, while you're there, just turn over to 16. Uh, Proverbs 16. If you ever wonder what was in Christ's heart as He died for us, 16.6 makes it very clear. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Christ was showing loyal love toward His bride. Christ was being faithful. In His flesh, did He want to do it? I mean, in His natural manhood, not fallen flesh, but in His, in his humanity? No, he, he didn't want to be. And also in His spirit, He didn't want to be separated from the Father. But He demonstrated what it's like to make and keep a commitment even to the point of shedding blood. Laying down his life, keeping that commitment, being loyal. And it, what does it do? It has changed the world. And so what are we told then? Let's look at these verses back in chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is an all-in reality. That th- th- this, this idea of trust means you can actually believe he's your security. Everybody in the world is talking about security. We all feel insecure. What are we going to do to be secure? God is our refuge. God is our fortress. And so we can trust him. But we don't need to just trust him in some of our ways. We need to trust him completely. The idea is of not just saying, all right, you know what? I think I'm a Christian and here's the pool of God and I'm just going to kind of stick my foot in. Or maybe I'm going to get on the kitty side of the pool and I'm going to wade in. What it means is, is that God is calling for us to say, what a life of faith is, is you just dive in. You dive in. You dive and you you believe that He's going to hold you up. It's sort of like in the... Uh, the last uh, Indiana Jones movie, The Last Crusade, right? They said there's a walkway across as it looks like there's nothing but a gap. And they're like, I don't know. And they throw out a little sand and they actually see it doesn't fall. There's an unseen bridge. In, in the same way, God has said without faith it is impossible to please Him. And what He's calling us to do is, is not to say, I've got it all figured out, therefore I'll follow you. Faith is about jumping in, being all in. God, I'm going to trust you with all my heart. Some of us, we have been, we've been holding on, saying, I'm not going to completely commit in case this thing isn't really real. And I'm telling you what the faith that the Lord is pleased with is when you just say, I'm all in. I'm all in. I mean, the Apostle Paul said, you know, I hear people all the time say, you know, well, if there is no afterlife, at least being a Christian is a better way to live. The Apostle Paul didn't think so. You know what it got being a Christian got him? Beaten up, stoned, shipwrecked, persecuted. It was a terrible life if that was it. He said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are above all men most to be pitied. So when we say we trust in God, it's not just that things are going to work out for us. Okay, God, if I do this, then my marriage is going to work. Lord, if I do this, then I'm going to have a good job. It's that, Lord, I believe that if I jump in, that every promise is yes and amen in Jesus. And that even if in this life all I experience is tribulation, I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that I will have length of days. That my barns will eternally be overflowing. And we jump in. We jump in. All in. That's what it means. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then it says, and do not lean on your own understanding. This means that we, we need to have not only be all in, but we need to have a total allegiance. This is an exclusivity. Most of us, this is what we want to do. We, we're like the children of Israel. You think about the northern tribe of Israel. After the kingdom divided, they didn't reject Yahweh. They just were hedging their bets. So they had a little Yahweh, a little Baal. You know, we'll just throw in whoever comes along. Uh, You'll see this often in in Hinduism. Uh, You know, they'll say, you'll be surprised. You'll find Hindus that say, yes, I worship Jesus Christ. You say, why? And they say, well, I want to have all my bases covered. And you look and he's one God among many. And what the Lord is saying here is, is you've got to trust him not only completely all in, but you've got to trust him exclusively. We don't just say, you know what, I'm going to take a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of biblical wisdom, but I'm also going to take a little bit of Dr. whoever and stick him in. Dr. Phil or whoever, I don't even know who's out there. I would have said Oprah, but I think she's gone. I don't know where she is. But we don't, right? We just say, my truth. Reality is described by God, and I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm not going to lean on the understanding of the world. It's exclusive. And then we see and acknowledge Him in all your ways. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Um, this means that a comprehensive, a comprehensive knowing of God. That word acknowledge is tough because that means sort of like you say, All right, God. I acknowledge, I confess you in in this realm. That doesn't, that's kind of a hard concept, but essentially what it's saying is you think about how everything you do in life relates to God. Everything. Do you do that? I mean, do you think about it? If you're washing the dishes, well, how do I do this? How do I acknowledge God? How do I know God in this moment? Well, you can be sure if you're murmuring and complaining... You're not acknowledging God, right? You're not knowing Him and God is saying, know me personally, experientially, in all of your ways. It, this is one of our greatest problems is we compartmentalize life and we say, there's a spiritual life, but then when I get out there, how I participate in my pastimes or how I participate in work or politics or whatever it is, somehow that's a different realm And God's saying Your trust in me means that you know me in every path of your life, with every encounter that you have, every realm. It is a comprehensive knowing of God. And then there's the promise. Not just a probability. He's going to make your path straight. Commentators struggle. Is that straight, smooth? What is it? I think it's both. And what what it means is, is he's going to give you a path home. Straight in the idea of of being morally correct, but also headed in the right direction. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. You've gone through the valley of the shadow uh, of death, but you end up in God's house this is the point is that that God is leading us Jesus didn't when, when he says it we just don't make the connection but he says I am the way and the truth and the life he is the path he is that straight path through the narrow gate narrow gate But it is a path that leads to life. It's a path that leads to the Father's house. It's a path where all of the promises, all of the promises of Proverbs come, not just spiritually true, but spiritually and physically true in new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And God is calling us to say, I'm all in. I'm all in. I mean, you, you think about Peter, right? Everybody starts walking away from Jesus. Jesus said, are you going to leave too? He says, where can we go? Who else has the words of life? Jesus is that path. He is the one. You know, he went from good success with God and man to a cross. But the cross wasn't the end. It was a through road for the joy set before him. And you know what that joy, it's not just that he's in heaven. He's in heaven beckoning you. Keep running. Steadfastness, faithfulness, trust in me, become like me, come to me, be conformed to my image. And soon and very soon, all of the promises will be yes and amen. And you will see them in the land of the living. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for, The fact that we can trust you. We can have peace in this journey. We can learn how to acknowledge you, to know you in every facet of our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for that sort of cautious faith where we just stick our toe in. Lord, may we be all in. And that we could say with the Apostle Paul, look, if we're wrong... And we're the most to be pitied, but boy, if we are right, we are the most blessed. Not just to hog it for ourselves, but to be a blessing to others. So, Lord, write these words on our heart. Help us to become more like the Savior who atoned for our sins with his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We make this prayer in Jesus' name, and together God's people said, Amen.